Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Toby Dore. She just published a book in June 15th, 2022. Title is Living with Conviction, Unexpected Sisterhood, Healing, and Redemption in the Wake of Life-Altering Choices. And she has a tale to tell about something that happened to her that really did change her life. Uh, she never had a traffic ticket. And people may have heard of her story on the news. She was... Uh, minor celebrity when this event happened. And, and it's happened, uh, this kind of situation has happened in multiple cases, but mm -hmm. she can talk more about that. So Toby, Dor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, William. I'm happy to be here. Great, a I, lot I'm of, glad you're here. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, a lot of people may have known me better as the dog lady. And when I start telling my story, even people say, oh, I don't know who you are. And I start telling the story and they always go, I remember that story, but... Uh, it was a pretty crazy story. I was like Miss Goody Two-Shoes, never did anything wrong, straight-A student, never had a curfew. And I started a prison dog program in 2004 because I had a cancer diagnosis. And, you know, when you hear cancer after your name, it kind of makes you stop and take stock and realize that we don't have unlimited time here. And so if you want to do something that makes a difference, then you need to do it because we don't know how much time we have. So uh, after I, I recovered from my cancer uh, surgery, I decided that I was going to start a dog rescue group. And within just a few days of my starting the dog rescue group, uh, someone from the prison up the street from us came and visited me and asked if I would consider having a prison dog program. And I jumped at the chance. That was on a Monday. And on a Wednesday, they had me come and give a presentation to the warden and his executive staff about how my prison dog program would look. I didn't have a clue, but I just kind of flew by the seat of my pants and, you know, put together some ideas. And so on Wednesday, I presented to the warden and his staff and they loved my idea. And they said, can you bring dogs in on Friday? And I had only started the rescue group on that Monday. So I had to like scramble around and go find dogs that needed homes. And uh, I started the prison dog program in August of 2004 with seven dogs. And by the time I left the prison dog program, 18 months later, I had rescued 1000 dogs. Wow. So it was a big program and I loved it. It, you know, it was making a difference in the world and just bringing dogs into the prison, change the whole atmosphere of the prison. You know, as human beings, we're social creatures and we long, you know, for connection with other people. But inside a prison is such an artificial and dangerous environment that connections with other people are, you know, they're forbidden. You, I mean, they get you in trouble. So you can imagine going 10 years, 20 years without ever hugging anyone or having someone to confide in. And then when we bring a dog into the prison and all of a sudden these men can hug this dog and walk the dog around the prison yard and tell their deepest secrets to something. It just changed the whole attitude of the prison almost overnight. And the warden's office, you know, kept asking me, can you bring more dogs? We have more dogs, to, more inmates that want to be dog handlers. And I think the most dog handlers we had at any given time was 80. And it, it was a huge program. It was the only program in the country at the time 
uh, that had dogs in medium custody, minimum custody, the maximum custody part of the prison. And I even had dogs in the mental health unit. So the dogs really were changing the whole environment of the prison. And were those dogs, did they get circulated through or were they there permanently? Were we placing No, they them? came in maybe for six to eight weeks, depending on the dog, until we had them housebroken and they knew basic commands, sit, stay and down and come. And they could walk on a leash without pulling and they didn't jump on people. So once we had them, you know, well-mannered house pets, then people would come and adopt them. And this prison dog program was just outside of Kansas City, which is right in the center of the country. But we had people drive from Milwaukee, Indianapolis, Dallas, just to adopt one of our dogs because they loved the idea of getting a dog that had changed the life of an inmate. So we had a high demand for our dogs. And uh, I still run into people today on Facebook or when I lived in Kansas City, I even went to a garage sale once and this lady was talking about how she'd adopted this dog from a prison dog program. And she wondered what happened to the woman who ran that program. And it turns out it was here. There I was in her garage looking at her couch. You know, it wow. just is crazy how big the program got. Um, and were you kind of how, how did you guys get financing? Was it all? Well, through- uh, it was through the adoption fees. That was all. You know, yeah. we would charge one hundred and fifty dollars to adopt a dog. And all of our dogs were spayed and neutered and on heartworm preventative. And um, we had worked out some deals with some local vets to give us spay and neuters at discounted prices. So when we adopted a dog out at $150, you know, we might make $50 or $75 that we could put back into the budget to pay for dog food and things like that. We didn't have to pay the inmates anything. So there was no labor involved and I didn't get paid. So we just mostly had to pay for gas and dog food and vaccinations and spays and neuters. And so that progressed. And you were just at one uh, facility at that time, right? Yes. Well, the prison, the pr- I was actually at uh, four different locations within the prison, but three of them were all on the same campus. So, you know, they were together, but they were just separated because one was minimum custody and one was medium custody and one was maximum custody. But then the mental health unit was a 30-minute drive away. And this is what, 2005, 2006? 2004 to 2006. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so you're talking with all the wardens, the officials there, as well as the inmates, correct? Yes, yes. And I, you know, I would spend, I tried to have a, a dog obedience classes in each one of the locations at least once a week, which would be for two hours. And then... I tried to have another time when I was up there uh, at a time when people could ask questions or we could work on teaching the dogs some tricks. We we took in every kind of dog. We had three-legged dogs. We had uh, dogs that were deaf and were blind. The men were teaching the uh, deaf dogs sign language, and they were teaching the blind dogs, you know, step up, step down, so that they knew to go up and down steps. And it just was really a beautiful thing. We were really doing great work for those dogs and for the men in the prison. Right. It works. I mean, that's a tough environment. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting that you were outside and may not have had any foreboding about. No. Right. No. Um, So how, what happened next? So I ran the prison dog program for 18 months and 
you know, things were going pretty smoothly. Um, but I was at a place in my life where it was kind of tumultuous. I had been laid off from my job just before I started the prison dog program. I'd had a, a pretty big corporate job at Sprint. And that, you know, was upsetting to try to find your footing and figure out who you were when your whole life had been this job that you had. Um, my, I had cancer and was recovering from cancer myself. My dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he was dying. And my two sons left home for college. So, you know, there were so many things that came together all at once. And it kind of was the perfect storm. And, you know, I, my husband and I, I start, we started dating when I was 15. We married when I was 20. I never dated anyone else. And I didn't have any kind of a relationship to compare my relationship to. But when my sons left home, I realized that my husband and I, we had nothing in common. Our lives had grown so diverse and so separate that, you know, activities with our sons was the only thing we had in common. And now they were gone too. So, and then with my, the biggest, the biggest, um, the biggest impact to my life at that time was my dad. And we knew he was dying. He didn't have, he had less than a year by the time he was diagnosed with his cancer. And after one particularly emotional day where they had to rush my dad to emergency surgery and we nearly lost him. And I spent the whole night at the hospital and then I left and I drove to the prison, um, you know, to go do my job and check on the dogs. And uh, one of the dog handlers, John Maynard, you know, met me in the prison yard and he said, Toby, what's going on with you? You something's really you're really upset. I can just tell. I can see it in your eyes. What's going on with you? And I said, well, I mean, first of all, he's the only person who ever even asked me how I was doing. You know, my husband didn't even ask me. And and it just felt like such a breath of fresh air to have someone notice me and pay attention to me. Um, and, you know, I kind of realized that most of my life, for almost all my entire life, I'd been searching for significance somewhere. And um, I'd, I'd lived most of my life just being invisible. You know, I was that person, the glue that held everything together and made sure everything got done. And, and nobody ever even noticed. But now this man was noticing that I was upset. And, you know, I told him my dad had surgery. And he said, oh, he said, that's terrible. And he said, I'm so glad that you, your husband was there with you to help you because that had to have been a really tough night. And I said, well, he wasn't there, you know, because he stayed home because he didn't want to lose any sleep. And he said there was nothing he could do at the hospital. So there was no sense in both of us staying up all night, which sounded normal to me until I was repeating it that day to John. And I realized by the look on his face that that seemed kind of odd and, and then John asked me, why are you married to him? And I didn't have an answer. I couldn't come up with an answer. And what really bothered me is, shouldn't I have an answer for that? Shouldn't that be something that's right at the tip of my tongue? And, and so for days, you know, I stayed away from the prison and, and I just kind of wrestled with that question in my mind about, you know, why was I still married? What was this married? What was I doing? And, and I never could come up with an answer for it. So 
you know, once you, that door's kind of open, that thought's kind of open, it's kind of hard to get rid of it. And so, you know, nothing really happened. And I just went on doing my job as the prison dog program lady, the dog lady. But, you know, throughout the next few months, John and I started talking more often because I, at the same time this happened, I was accosted by one of my dog handlers in the prison yard and he had his fists up and he was going to hit me. And I was so startled because I'd never been, you know, threatened or felt fear in any way. And that just kind of really upset me and made me afraid to come into the prison. But John met me at the gate when I came in every time after that and escorted me around so that nobody would bother me and I would feel safe which just gave us opportunity to have a lot more conversation than we might normally have had. So your relationship kind of grew with that going on. Did you know his background? And I did know his did you background. find out? So you kind of knew that he had, yeah. what his history was. Yeah, I did. Um, some of the inmates told me what their history was. Some of them didn't, but I eventually figured it out. I didn't really pay attention to what their histories were because I just wanted to see him for how they were with the dogs and not be influenced by anything else. Um, John Maynard was serving a life sentence for felony murder. And felony murder means that you were committing a felony at the time someone was killed and that you weren't the one who killed them, but you were involved in an act where someone was killed. So a friend of his, they were stealing a car and they thought the car was empty and John opened one door and got in and his friend went around and opened the other door. And there was a man sleeping inside the car. And uh, John, the buddy that John was with had a gun and he shot the man and that was in the car and killed him. So they were both found guilty of murder. And in some way, you know, it made me feel like his crime was a little bit less than murder because he didn't kill anyone. So to me, it seemed, you know, that he wasn't, as dangerous as a murderer might be. He was young at the time too. He was 17. Yeah. He was 17. So he got tried as an adult. Yes. Yes. So John and I ended up spending more and more time together. And, you know, after a few months he said, Toby, I think I'm in love with you. And I haven't been in love. And, you know, and he said, I don't know what's going on, but I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't do anything. And, and I realized that I was feeling the same way. And so, you know, after a few weeks after he'd made that admission, he asked me if he wasn't in prison, would I be with him? And I said, maybe, you know, thinking it's not going to happen because he's not getting out. But if he was out, you know, maybe maybe we could make a relationship work. I don't know. And so John kind of took that as a green light to figure out how he was going to get out of prison. And he, he, you know, he'd, he'd approach me with ideas and he'd say, you know, if I put myself in a box and ship myself out somewhere, you know, and I'd say, well, that is a dumb idea and it won't work because of this reason, this reason, or this reason. And then he wouldn't say anything. And a few days later, he'd come back and say, well, how about this idea? And I'd say, well, that's even dumber than the first idea. And to me, it felt kind of like a game, you know, like we're just this fantasy game kind of thing. And then one day he said, you know, I could hide in your dog van when you come to pick up dogs for adoption. And I said, well, now that idea would probably work. And so 
he was off and running trying to figure out how he was going to make it work. And I just thought it was a casual conversation. But um, a few weeks later, he approached me and said, I think I got it figured out. And I said, I can't do that. You know, I can't, I'm, I'm not doing that. And then I thought about it for a couple of days. And then I thought, well, maybe I could do that. And so on February 12th, 2006, I pulled into the prison in my dog van to pick up dogs for a regular dog adoption. And uh, one of the unit team leaders had asked me to take this big metal crate out of the prison because it was a danger. Men could take it apart and use the metal bars, you know, as shanks. But I'd had a pregnant dog and puppies in it and they were, had all been adopted. And so, you know, John was standing there when the unit team leader told me I needed to get it out. And he said, well, I have an idea. How about if I take that down to Toby's van next time she comes in for a dog adoption, we'll just put it in the van for her because that crate is way too big for her to carry. And the unit team leader said, that's a good idea. I'll make a note and let the officer at the guard shack know that that's, you're going to do that. Well, then the day of the uh, adoption, John told his roommate and a couple other guys who were in the room next to him that... Um, he had gotten called into work, but he'd already made arrangements to take this crate down and put it in my van. So if he had the crate and all the equipment on the farm wagon, which I had a farm wagon that I could carry 50 pound sacks of dog food around inside the prison. If, if he had the crate and all the dog equipment inside the crate and on this farm wagon, would they wheel it down and put it in my van for me? Cause he had gotten called into work and they said, sure. So, that's what they did, except that he was hidden inside of a box that was inside of the dog crate. And so they loaded it into my van and I drove off. And, you know, there was a huge part of me that hoped that he wasn't in the box. And there was a big part of me that was excited that he might be in the box. And, and, you know, we would go have this wonderful uh, getaway and, I, when I pulled out of the first gate of the prison, I had to drive through three great, three gates to get out. And when I pulled through the first two, I'd said, John, are you in there? And he didn't answer. And I thought, I felt this huge sense of relief and thought, wow, I'm going <laughs> to, he's not in there. Oh, thank goodness. I'm just going to go do a dog adoption like normal. But when I got off the prison ground and actually out into the city, he popped out of the box and said, and, you know, just started laughing and it, and it just startled me. And I pulled the van over and he said, drive, Toby, drive. And so I drove and we were off. You were off. So that was it. And at what point did the jail realize he was missing? Well, the escape was about 1030 in the morning and the next count was at 330 because on a Sunday and it was a visiting day. So we had, you know, five hours of a head start before they knew someone was missing. And what happened next? So... Um, I went to my house and I dropped the dogs off that I'd picked up to take to adoption. I dropped them off in my barn and then we drove to a storage unit where I had stored a pickup truck that I'd bought. And we pulled the truck out of the storage unit and put the van in the storage unit and closed the door and got in the truck and left. And we were gone for 12 days. We had rented a cabin in Tennessee in the mountains for a month, but we didn't know what we were going to do after that month was over. And um, I am so not a good criminal. 
I sent the title to the truck to our getaway cabin because I knew we'd have to license the truck or we'd get pulled over. So we bought, I had a 30 day tag on it, but I actually had to mail the title to where we were staying in Tennessee. And as soon as the title got there, then we were going to leave and go somewhere else. Although we didn't know yet where we were going to go. And the marshals figured out and the FBI fugitive team, they figured out uh, that that was most likely me that had sent the title to the cabin in Tennessee. And so they came to find us. That's right. So that's how you really start the book is your. Yes. That's the beginning chase, of the right? book. That's the beginning of the book, the 100 mile an hour car chase and crash head on into a tree. That's the beginning of the book. Yeah. And you, when you were on the run, were you aware of all the media presence and how interested the public and people were in your story? I had no idea. <clears throat> I should have known, you know, I'm not stupid. I should have known, but I had no idea. And John never had us turn on the radio or the, TV. You know, we had some CDs to listen to music, but we never turned on the radio and we never turned on the TV. And it was because he didn't want me to know how big of a search it was going to be because he knew I would freak out. Gotcha. So that he kind of kept that information from you. Yes. And when did it, when did it dawn on you that everybody wanted to hear the story and not know the story? I mean, uh, not until we were arrested really. And then, you know, even then the, so we were in Chattanooga. We'd gone to a movie and we were driving home, but we stopped at a Barnes and Noble because John wanted to buy me a book. And it just so happened that the FBI fugitive team was sitting in the Barnes and Noble parking lot trying to plan what they were going to do for the next day because they'd been to our cabin that day, but we weren't there. And so they were trying to figure out what their next step was going to be. And we walked right in front of them, which is just stunningly coincidental. And they recognized you. Right and they away. recognized us. And so they followed us onto the interstate and they set up this trap. So about an hour down the interstate, we came up over a hill and the whole highway, they had closed down the interstate to oncoming traffic. They closed all the exits. And uh, we came up over this hill and the whole highway was filled with police cars, you know, 50 or 60 police cars, all different departments and colors and shapes and styles. But, and then they had a helicopter overhead shining a light on us. And, and I thought John was going to pull over. You know, I, I told him we needed to pull over, but then one of the police officers made him mad and he just took off and he said he was going to just run until we ran out of gas or we crashed. And it was terrifying. And, and we did crash into a tree. Like they literally pulled you out of the window, the broken. Yes, door. they did. And they he did. had a gun, right? You had gun. You had a weapon of some. Yeah, sort. at the cabin. The guns were at the cabin. Yeah. So when you did, you understand the enormity at the time once you had the car crash. Like. Yes, that, I mean reality really hit me in the face then, and you know. I remember John jumped out of the truck really quickly because he said, you know, they're going to start shooting Toby. I've got to get out. You know, I can't let you get shot. And he jumped out of the truck and I couldn't get my seatbelt. I think, I think I might've had a concussion and blacked out for a moment. And I know I had the wind knocked out of me, but I was just kind of stunned and didn't quite comprehend what was going on, but I couldn't get my seatbelt unlatched. And my window had broken out and the dad, the windshield had broken out and this police officer came running up to my window and he was dressed in all black with a 
little walkie talkie and he had a little black machine gun and he, you know, he stuck the gun in my face and said, get out of the truck. And I tried to say, I can't unhook my seatbelt, but I couldn't talk because I had the wind knocked out of me. And he reached in and unlatched the seatbelt and he said, I'll get you out of there. And he just pulled me out by my, the, my shoulder, the shirt on my shoulder and my hair and pulled me through the window and threw me on the ground. And I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, this is like real stuff here. So it was, I was kind of startled at, you know, I knew that they, I knew that they would be aggressive to get John because he was a felon, but I was just the dog lady and I didn't expect it for me, but I learned pretty quickly that, you know, I was a felon too. Or did they think you were armed and dangerous? I mean, did, was that the APB out there? Or what, yes. I mean, did you, yes. Okay, so they, they thought we were armed and dangerous. Yes. And so you were taken to the local jail and mm -hmm. that's when kind of the media onslaught heard, right? Oh, it was just a frenzy and it was just stunning. So on Monday, that was a Friday night. And on Monday morning, they took me to court in Tennessee and I was in the backseat of a police car and, we pulled around the corner into this little downtown and the woman officer in the front seat said, well, we can't go that way. And I looked up to see what they were looking at. And the whole street was filled with news trucks. And that was back in the day where you had to like put down the jacks on the news truck to lift up the big antennas and the satellite dishes, you know, and, and they had the whole street blocked off and it was just filled with these big news vans. And I said, Oh gosh, isn't it just my luck to be coming to court on a day when something big is happening? And the female officer started laughing. She said, honey, you are the big. And I was like, what? You know, I, I didn't connect it, but you know, immediately when we got out of the car, the media just, they come running like rabid dogs, it seemed, you know, and just almost falling over to get to me and stick a microphone in my face. And it was so bewildering. And I just, you know, I, I couldn't understand the media frenzy and, you know, it was, it was crazy. It's, right. And you were what, I think you were kind of, uh, at that time married yes. kids in college, mm -hmm. like you said. So mm -hmm. maybe that, that was, might've been like this. Somebody becomes a criminal must've yes. touched yeah. a nerve or something. With mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, I mean, I, I was surprised, but you had a million dollar bond. Was that's what they wanted to? That's what the bail bondsman told me he was going to set was a million dollar bond, and I was just flabbergasted because you know if somebody drew a line in the street and said don't cross that line, I would have never crossed it. You know, which I guess they didn't believe, but uh, yeah, they wanted to set a million dollar million dollar bond. I don't know if they actually did because when he told me when the bail bondsman said he was going to recommend a million dollar bonds, I just said. Oh, forget it. I'm not getting out, you know, and I never even pursued it. Yeah, it's incredibly expensive. I mm -hmm. think they scrape off 10, 15 percent of that. Yeah. Principle. Yeah. Uh, even if you can come up with a million dollars. And so you're kind of a straight and narrow person put into an environment with some very different characters than you mm -hmm. used to be around at Sprint, right? Yes, <laughs> totally different. Yes. Can you talk about thing. what it was like kind of adapting to that? So, you know, this is kind of interesting. So they kept me for when I went to when I got taken back to Kansas, I was in the Leavenworth County Jail and the administrator there put me in this medical observation room for the first three weeks because he didn't want to put me in general population. And he came in and he said, 
you know, why are you still here? And I said, um, well, take any one of a million reasons, the million dollar bond, the horde of media camped out at my parents' driveway. I mean, you name it. That's why I'm here. And he said, well, I didn't expect you to be here. I, um, I thought you would have bonded out. So, but I need this medical observation room for a medical patient. So I'm going to have to put you in SAG. And I said, I'm not going to SAG. You know, SAG is where they lock you up alone for 24 hours a day and you don't have any interaction with anyone. And, and generally it's a punishment. And I said, I'm not going to SAG because I didn't do anything wrong. And so I convinced him to put me into the general population. And if, if I had trouble, I would let him know. So my first roommate was, this was my first experience as an inmate. Uh, she was 19 years old and she probably outweighed me by 200 pounds. And when we were first locked down for the first night and she started talking and she said, I, I'm here because I robbed the Chinese delivery driver. I don't know why I robbed the Chinese delivery driver, but he, I just decided I needed to. And I ordered Chinese food. And when he pulled up, I said, give me your, give me my food and give me your money. And she said, I got $7 of my food. And I knew the police were going to come, but I just sat on my porch and ate my Chinese food and waited for him to come. And she said, I don't know why I robbed that Chinese driver. It was just because the voices tell me to do things. And then she pulled up her sleeve and showed me her arms and said, do you cut yourself? See, I cut myself. I don't know why I cut myself, but I cut myself because I think it lets the pain out. I don't understand why I cut myself. I don't know anybody else that cuts themselves. And then she said, you know, I have this little dog and I love this little dog. Do you think he'll forgive me for being gone? Do you think he'll understand that I'm coming back? You know, will he still love me when I come back? I mean, she's just talking a mile a minute. And then she said, I hear voices. Do you hear voices? And I said, no. And she said, I hear voices. And she said, and they get louder and louder and louder. And I have to do what they tell me to do, or they just keep getting so loud that I can't ignore them. And she said, and those voices tell me to hurt people. But then she said, looked at me and she said, but I don't think I'll hurt you. I like you. Do you want to play cards? You know, and it's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? But, you know, we played cards till four in the morning and I kind of resolved that I would never fall asleep before she did. I'd wait for her to fall asleep because I don't know what her voices were going to do. And, you know, but Jessica turned out to be a sweet girl that had a lot of issues and, and she became my first friend in prison. Um, and, but I did find that so many of the women in prison were women who had issues that they just didn't know how to deal with. And they didn't have the, the skill set or the people around them to help them deal with their issues, but they were people just like I was, and they had issues that they didn't know that were bigger than they were. And, you know, I found this real sisterhood behind bars and, you know, I'm still friends with quite a few of those women today. And that's some of the strongest friendships I've ever had. I mean, cause you're locked in there together going through a stressful yeah. time too. I, yeah, I assume that's kind through. of a bonding. It also yeah. sounds like your family was very supportive too. They did. Yes. My mom and dad and my brother there. brothers were so supportive of me. My mom, my mom bent over backwards for me. I'm not sure I would have survived prison without her. That's amazing. And uh, what happened with uh, KSI asked, what happened with the dog program after? Oh, so I'm so happy with what happened with the dog program. I, I was concerned that they would cancel it because I was running it virtually by myself. I had some people who helped me when they could, but 
a couple of the officers in the prison decided to keep the program going. And they did. And I think they just closed it like last summer. So it ran oh, for wow. 15 years after I was gone. That's amazing. A thousand dogs. Is, that's a tremendous amount of places. Yes. Yes. It really is uh, extraordinary. And so you're in there and there were other people too who were famous with you. There's other women. You're getting transferred around. And then the feds actually decided to charge you too. Yes. So, right okay. after I got, so I got sentenced to my state sentence of 21 months and I had a meltdown when my attorney told me that I was going to have to do 21 months because I thought maybe I'd do, you know, three or four months. That seemed like a lot of time. But, you know, when he told me I had to do 21 months, I just had a big meltdown because I said, there's no way I can do it. And he said, I think you can do it. And I realized, you know, I could do it. And so I got settled into state prison. And then uh, just a month or two after I got into state prison and I was kind of just starting to feel comfortable and thinking, okay, I figured out how this works. I can do this. I can make it. And then I saw on the news, which is how I learned everything about my case was on the news or in the headlines of the newspaper, um, that the feds had indicted me for, uh, providing handguns to a felon. And I didn't even know that was, you know, seven or eight months after the escape. And I, I had a huge meltdown. I had a panic attack and, and um, ended up, you know, got moved out of the state prison into a federal facility for 11 months while they did the federal charges and finally got me through court there. And you they- to Leavenworth, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. It was a, not Leavenworth Federal Prison, oh. but another prison in Leavenworth. Okay, gotcha. So Leavenworth Federal Prison is just for men. But I got a 27-month federal sentence, but it was ordered to run concurrently with my state sentence, so it gave me a total of 27 months in prison. So you served that full 27 I months. I did, yes. And you got through kind of crafting there. They allowed you at least some kind of creative outlet. Yes, so yes. Like Different places. Some of them had activities to try to just help the monotony because, you know, literally the, the 15 months I spent in the federal system there was absolutely nothing to do. I just felt like a book on a shelf at a bookstore waiting for somebody to pick it up and buy it. Cause there was no, you know, there was nowhere to go. You're just locked into this room and there's no, you know, gymnasium or anywhere to go do anything. Like sometimes you think prisons like in this particular place, there wasn't any of that. So the boredom was just insane. Uh, but one lady in the community, an elderly woman, was a quilter and she had come up to the prison and asked if she could bring in scraps of fabric and, and have a quilting class with us. And, and it was awesome. It was a lifesaver for us. All right. And that kind of was the bonding kind of coming together. That yes. Kind of camaraderie yes. To, yes. Uh, We'd sit and craft for hours a day if they'd let us. And, you know, we had these, this bag of scraps of fabric that any other person would have thrown away. I mean, they were just thin little pieces and nothing that matched, but we put it all together and made things and it was just wonderful. And I mean, so you went through that. There's a lot more details in the book. You talk about the stream dragon, you talk about a lot of stuff and you come out the other side. I mean, we're kind of in the wrapping up. Like we're, we're about mm -hmm. 35 minutes. What was it like to kind of come to terms with what happened and how did you kind of find some, some, Peace with uh, your decision. So I realized, you know, my life 
outside of prison before the escape was so hectic and busy. And I, and I, that's, that's how I kept it. But when I was in prison, I had no deadlines, no projects, no deliverables, no emails, no phone calls. I mean, I had nothing. I just had all this time. And I realized that I could use that time to go back through my life and really dig in deep and do a lot of introspection about my past and, you know, dig up the things in my life that I never dealt with, like the death of my daughter, and work through those traumas and, and start to heal myself so that I, I could understand who I was and I could kind of start building a foundation for a future that I could envision where I can make a difference in the world. And you do, you have this uh, Unleashed series. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I created this series of, of workbooks. Right now there's three of them. I think there'll be six altogether, but um, they are a program to help women go through that very same journey that I did for myself in prison of going back through my life and examining, you know, past events and digging open those old wounds and trying to heal them so that I can let things go and move forward. So, you know, we go through the first workbook is for personal development, you know, develop uh, discernment and boundaries and gratitude and, you know, some healthy core things that you need in your character if you want to move forward. And then the second book is about how to find and cultivate a healthy community, because a lot of the women that I knew who were in trouble, it was because of who they hung out with. So, you know, it, and it, it's a skill to learn to be in a healthy community and to be able to receive from a healthy community, because some people, you know, they don't want people to help them. They want to do things on their own, but you need to learn how to let people help you. And then the third workbook is, you know, for women who feel a calling to do something, but they don't quite know what it is. And it's just some exercises to help you kind of figure out where that fire in your soul is coming from. Right. That's very helpful. Like, and you kind of became an activist a little bit in the while you were incarcerated. Yes, I did. I did. Got some yeah. books involved and mm -hmm. tried to make them. Yeah, I started so a book drive and got better food on the commissary. And yeah, there were just some things that, you know, when we could, when I can make a difference, I stood up and tried. Yeah, it's really interesting. Really great job. Great job on the book. And, and thanks so much for your time. We're at about 38 minutes. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed? And then maybe you can say, where's the best place to get the book? And, and yeah, so social actually, media? yeah, my social media, I'm on Instagram. It's just Toby Dore and it's T-O-B-Y-D-O-R-R. On Facebook, it's Toby Door Author, and my website is tobydoor.com. The book is available on Amazon or in any bookstore, you know, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. You can go in. If they don't have it in stock, they can order it for you. But uh, Living With Conviction is anywhere, book, your favorite bookstore where books are sold. And anything else you'd like to add? or I mean, Well, just really, yeah. go, uh, you know, none of us are our worst mistake. I mean, that's what it boils down to. We can all rise above the worst thing we've ever done, and we can find a way to use those lessons to do something good in the world. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Really fascinating You're story. Welcome. I have a lot of courage to come and share that, so I appreciate it. And Thank the book, again, the full title is Living with Conviction, Unexpected Sisterhood, Healing and Redemption in the Wake of Life-Altering Choices, just published June 15, 2022. There is an audio book, too. So people mm -hmm. can see that on Kindle audiobook or get a yeah, and the audiobook I read myself. So oh, great. It, cool. it's my favorite of awesome. the four versions of the book. Yeah. 
Uh, well, correct. Congratulations. And, and thanks for sharing your story. Thank really you so much. It. I'm glad to be day. here. All right. Great. Take care. Stay All there. Right, Stay there. I'm going to end the podcast. Stay there. Okay.